11. John Ray and the Austrian Theory of Capital and Interest The most remarkable contribution to the theory of capital and interest in the post-Ricardian period was by the drifter and eccentric John Ray, 1796-1872. Ray set forth his theory as part of a tract designed to argue for a protective tariff, some New Principles on the Subject of Political Economy, Boston, 1834. Ray had the most extensive and fully developed analysis until Böhm-Bawerk and the Austrians of the crucial role of time in the theory of capital and interest. In the theory of capital, Ray saw that a key to production is increasing investment in capital goods themselves the product of labor and nature, and that capital goods can be ranked on the basis of their rate of return and the time necessarily involved from their formation until their depletion. Specifically, lengthening the process of production, or the time involved in the process of investing in capital, will enable the use of capital goods of greater physical productivity. But while waiting a longer time will enable one to tap more physically productive processes of production, this benefit must always be weighed against the unwelcome necessity of waiting longer into the future until the return from capital is obtained. And here, John Ray presented the fullest development to date of the time preference theory of interest, to balance against the greater productivity of waiting longer into the future, the capitalist must charge an interest rate based on the greater desirability of present as against future goods. In short, investors must sacrifice present for future goods, and so they must be compensated for this investment by a return reflecting their degree of time preference. Investors will be sacrificing a smaller present good for a larger future good, the degree of difference, their interest return, being dependent on people's cultural and psychological willingness to take a long-run view of the future. Those with lower time preference rates, that is, those who take a longer view of the future, are particularly looking to raise the standard of living of their children. On the other hand, for Ray, those with higher time preference possess weak intellectual and moral principles and suffer from a defect of the imagination. Ray also anticipated Schumpeterian theory in placing great emphasis on the importance of inventions and stressed that inventions opened up new opportunities for highly profitable capital investment and that resulting high profits stimulated such investment. Schumpeter paid high tribute to Ray's achievement, calling his work a theory of capital conceived in unprecedented depth and breadth, although, oddly enough, he doesn't mention Ray's stress on inventions. Schumpeter does add, however, that given ten additional years of quiet work, graced by an adequate income, Ray's new principles could have grown into another and more profound wealth of nations. 
and Burmba Verk, who had not known of Ray's achievement in the first edition of his History and Critique of Interest Theories, for once was very generous in his glowing account in later editions, calling Ray's work exceedingly original and remarkable. John Ray's accomplishment was all the more striking because it did not come from a writer steeped in economic discussions of the Great Britain of his day. On the contrary, it came from a man who must be described overall as a brilliant drifter, crank, and loser. John Ray was a Scotsman, born in Aberdeen, the son of a prosperous self-made merchant and shipbuilder, Interested in invention and the natural sciences, Ray, as a young maths student at the University of Aberdeen, presented some inventions in mechanics to his professor, who pronounced them ingenious but impractical. Dropping the matter so as not to irritate his practical-minded father, Ray decided upon graduation to go to the University of Edinburgh to study medicine. But, typical of Ray, while studying for his M.D. dissertation, he became convinced that prevailing physiological theories were false, and so he dropped out of medical school, determined to write a grandiose philosophical history of mankind. Embarking on this ambitious but truly impractical life work, Ray plunged into the study of biology, philology, ethnology, aeronautics, geology, education, and the social sciences, undoubtedly with radical ideas in them all. Very little of this ever got written or published, his published work consisting of a few scattered articles on such matters as emigration, education, Canadian religion, Hawaiian customs and legislation, and Polynesian languages. His extant unpublished papers are on geological topics. This sort of life plan was scarcely calculated to yield John Ray a secure income, and the bankruptcy of his father, as well as a possible social stigma from his marrying the daughter of a shepherd, drove him to emigrate to the backwoods of Canada at the age of 25. It was during this course of self-study that John Ray read The Wealth of Nations and developed an antipathy to that Scotsman's general commitment to free trade and laissez-faire. In particular, Ray acquired a lifelong interest in protectionism and government subsidies to industry. At least some of that reaction reflected a typically Scottish Calvinist hostility to luxury and consumer indulgence. A strong advocate of thrift and abstinence, Ray lamented any luxurious consumption among the lower classes, which weakens their effective desire for accumulation. Sensual appetites lead the poor to marry and increase their number of children unduly, also weakening their propensity to save and to raise their standard of living. Ray's first interest in the protective tariff came in Scotland in 1819, attacking the desire of the numerous followers of Adam Smith to greatly lower the taxes and tariffs on whiskey, and to allow the manufacture of whiskey in small stills. Ray reacted angrily, worrying as he did about the general morals of the people resulting from an abundance of cheap whiskey. 
Arriving in Canada, Ray soon became a schoolmaster at a private school and a physician in the small village of Williamstown, Ontario. Williamstown was a center of the Scottish Presbyterian settlement in Canada, and Ray, a devout adherent of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, embroiled himself in the claims of that church to government support as against the exclusivist claims of the Church of England. Apart from Anglican elitism unsuited to North American conditions, Ray opined, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland insisted on austere morality as against the laxity of the Anglicans. He criticized the United States for not having an established religion, thereby lessening the incomes and tenure of the clergy and weakening the bonds of genuine religion. After a decade in Williamstown, John Ray felt it was time to move on. In 1831, he resigned his post as schoolmaster and as one of the three coroners of the Eastern District of Ontario and moved to Montreal. He had decided to begin work on his life project, or at least a subset of it, to be devoted to the present state of Canada, which would present his ideas on Canadian geology and economic development, and to make a strong plea for continued Canadian membership in the British Empire. While in Montreal, he petitioned the government of Upper Canada for a travel and research grant to finance this projected work, but the Upper Canada Assembly felt there were more important things to be done and turned down Ray's grant proposal, despite the favorable recommendation of the lieutenant governor. Ray was still determined to work on his life project, and he repaired to the lumbering village of Godmanchester, not far from Montreal, where he apparently worked in menial tasks in lumbering while publishing pro-British Empire articles in the Montreal Gazette. There he wrote what was supposed to be another subset of his master plan, his great work on the new principles of political economy. The spirit of revolution against the British Empire was abroad in Canada, and Ray's letters to the Gazette were vitriolic in denunciation. The criticisms of Britain, he fulminated, were gross misrepresentations, infamous falsehoods, and horrid blasphemies. Recalling the horrors of the French Revolution, Ray thundered that the banners of imperial justice must be displayed, else in a short time the reign of terror be attempted in Canada, and red ruin ride triumphantly. In view of Ray's strong connections in Montreal, it is difficult to see why he languished in Godmanchester. His sister, Anne Cuthbert, a poet and headmistress of a boarding school, was married to a wealthy dry goods merchant, James Fleming. Fleming's brother, John, was a prominent writer as well as a leading official of the Bank of Canada and Bank of Montreal, and the family moved in the circle of leading Scottish Presbyterian merchants and ultra-loyalists of the British Empire, surrounded by a Canadian populace of what they took to be French-Canadian insurgents and radicals. Ray conceived his new principles to be another subset of his life work, this time devoted to the growth of nations and to the necessity for a protective tariff and other forms of government promotion of industry. 
He finished the book in 1833 and originally meant to publish it in England, but for some reason changed his plans and traveled to Boston to seek aid in publishing the book there. In Boston, Ray met and was taken under the wing of the powerful Alexander Hill Everett, 1790-1847, a leading Boston Brahmin, a protege of ex-president John Quincy Adams, and recently Adams' minister to Spain. An accomplished linguist and classicist as well as an attorney, Everett had left government service to become the editor of the prominent and influential North American Review. A decade earlier, Everett had written New Ideas on Population, 1823, in which he sensibly attacked Malthus for not realizing that population growth can bring abundance, not poverty, by extending the division of labor, expanding markets and cities, and increasing the production of food and manufactures. Everett, like the rest of New England, had lately shifted from free trade to the advocacy of a protective tariff, particularly for the region's nascent textile manufacturers. The protectionists were looking around wildly for textbooks and academics who would support their cause, since the works of Adam Smith and J.B. Say were dominant in American universities. Meeting and being impressed with John Ray and hearing of his new protectionist work, Everett was enthusiastic about him and arranged sight unseen to publish the book in Boston. Apparently, Everett had bought a pig in a poke. Reviewing it in the North American Review, Everett damned Ray's new principles with faint praise. He had been looking for a hard-hitting protectionist tract, Instead, he found the book filled with technical jargon he could barely comprehend, and much of it had little or no bearing on the tariff issue. The bulk of the book dealt with the theory of capital and interest, and the importance of the expansion of capital to the growth of a nation. As Everett shrewdly pointed out, these views were not really at variance with those of Adam Smith, and none of it bore directly on the protectionist issue. To Ray himself, the connections were clear, if too remote for those interested in public policy. He believed that economic development depended jointly on new inventions and their application in capital investment, and most of his proposed government policies were subsidies and bounties to new inventions and industries, to be financed by heavy tariffs on the imports of luxuries. In that way, Ray's Calvinist soul would be satisfied, for the government would be imposing moral principles by promoting thrift, invention, and industry, while discouraging sinful luxuries, especially in a prefigurement of Thorstein Veblen, where consumption is conspicuous, and therefore particularly wasteful. Ray's denunciation of luxurious consumption, which Ray boldly called a loss to the society in proportion to their amount, did not sit very well with Everett, but his main criticism was that the country needed a well-written and well-reasoned essay on this protectionist question, a work of sufficient compass and authority to serve as a textbook. Clearly, John Ray's work did not fill the bill. 
The book was a commercial failure and was quickly forgotten. The understandably chagrined and embittered Ray wrote in a letter years later that, unfortunately, I was induced to publish in Boston under the assurance from A. H. Everett that it would be appreciated there. He was, however, I believe, scared of it, could not make up his mind, nor could anyone there if I was right or wrong, and so passed it by with praise of its style, etc. This damned it. In addition, the free traders and the worshippers at the shrine of Adam Smith, who came in for considerable direct criticism in the book, attacked Ray's work. But possibly more fatal than any of these factors was the timing of the book, for after the tariff of 1833, lowering tariffs considerably, tariff agitation in the United States began to subside, and the tariff was repeatedly lowered throughout the 1840s. Free trade had apparently triumphed, at least until the Civil War. In Canada, furthermore, there were scarcely any economists or academics fit to appraise Ray's work, and in Britain there was a general scorn for colonials and failure to take North Americans seriously. In England, however, Nassau Sr., whose work on capital and interest was not far from Ray's, read the new principles by the mid-1840s and admired it greatly, and traces of Ray can be found in Sr.'s later writings. Senior passed the book on to John Stuart Mill, who commended it warmly in his overwhelmingly popular 1848 treatise, The Principles of Political Economy. Ray heard of Mill's praise five years later through a Canadian friend, and wrote warmly, if mournfully, to Mill that it is the only thing connected with that publication which has afforded me any gratification. Here a mystery arises for the history of economic thought. Despite Mill's warm commendation of Ray's book in what was the dominant treatise on economics for a generation, no economist anywhere picked up on the reference, and knowledge of Ray virtually disappeared. The only exception was the great Italian classical economist Francesco Ferrara, 1810-1900, who translated Ray's new principles into Italian in the mid-1850s. Apart from that, nothing. W. Stanley Jevons, devoted to the history of economic thought, apparently never heard of the book, and even the great Bermbaverk had never read John Ray when, in the 1880s, he wrote the first edition of his History and Critique of Interest Theories. Ray remained unknown to economists until his memory was revived and his work reprinted by Professor Charles Whitney Mixter at the turn of the 20th century. Perhaps a clue to the puzzle is in Bermbaverk's later editions, where he points out that Mill's encomiums to Ray, while warm, were general and even banal, and scarcely conveyed the brilliance and originality of his work on capital and interest. As Bermbaverk explains it, but it is a strange fact that in all his numerous quotations from Ray, John Stuart Mill never included any of the material which constitutes the essence of Ray's original ideas. 
He quotes instead merely ornamental incidentals, and even among those only the sort of thing that could be used to illustrate the traditional doctrines that Mill himself was presenting. And since Ray's book seems to have been read in the original by only extremely few persons, just the most interesting part of its contents remained unknown to his contemporaries. There was little likelihood that they, and even less that subsequent generations, would be apprised by Mill's quotations of the importance of the book, or impelled to conduct any research into his quickly forgotten work. Disappointed in the reception of his book, unemployed and destitute, Ray won an appointment as headmaster of a government district grammar school in what was then the brawling frontier town of Hamilton, Ontario. There he lived in genteel poverty on a low salary and was continually in debt, but he was apparently beloved by his students, and was known in Hamilton as a graceful and elegant ice skater, as well as president of the Hamilton Literary Society. There he played a prominent role in the first contingent of Hamilton Militia, which in 1837 and 1838 helped put down an armed rebellion by Canadian nationalists anxious to cut the ties with the empire. Ray engaged in aeronautical experiments with balloons, and wrote increasingly on geological topics. He also continued to work on the economic geography of Canada, and finally in 1840 completed his magnum opus, a lengthy book on the outlines of the natural history and statutes of Canada. Unfortunately, however, the decade of the 1840s saw fate land a series of hammer blows against John Ray. First, the manuscript of his book on Canada was irretrievably lost en route to possible publishers in New York. Second, after teaching in Hamilton for 14 years, Ray was summarily fired in 1848. The problem was that Ray became inevitably embroiled in educational political struggles, particularly over getting Presbyterians appointed to teaching and administrative posts in the Anglican-dominated Ontario school system. Furthermore, in 1843, in the disruption, the Church of Scotland, and hence its affiliated Presbyterian Church in Canada, split in irretrievable schism with hardcore Calvinists opposed to secular state domination of the Church, splitting off from the established Church of Scotland and forming the Free Church. As we might expect from his character, Ray, along with his friends, joined the Free Church, which lost him the political support of the established Presbyterian officials dominant in his school district. Ray's stay in Hamilton was doomed. Ray then left Canada and did some school teaching in Boston and New York, where, a year after his dismissal, he received another staggering blow, news of the death of his wife, Eliza. Discouraged, restless, penniless, and uprooted at the age of 53, John Ray began a new life of wandering and drift. Attracted by the gold rush, he sailed to California, where he did a little school teaching and carpentry. In ill health in California, Ray was soon off to the Hawaiian Islands, where he was to spend the rest of his days. 
There, on the island of Maui, Ray prospered economically for the first time, teaching English to Hawaiian natives, farming, and functioning as a medical agent for the Board of Health. Ray began to blossom politically because of his new friendship with a fellow Scottish expatriate, Robert Crichton Wiley, a surgeon from Glasgow University, wealthy businessman, and now Minister of Foreign Relations of the Hawaiian Kingdom. With Wiley's patronage, Ray became coroner, notary public, medical attendant, and district judge in Maui. His favorable circumstances now led Ray to resume his various scientific interests. He wrote articles and papers on geology, particularly on volcanoes, ocean tides, and Hawaiian geology, on the Polynesian language, and tried to revive interest in marketing his long-neglected navigational inventions. But John Ray was incapable of holding on to money, and so perpetually reverted to destitution. With his patron Wiley dead and in ill health, Ray accepted the offer of an old friend and former student to pay for his trip from Hawaii to live with him permanently at his home in Staten Island. But Ray died on Staten Island the following year. Restless and eccentric, John Ray, in a sense, wrote a suitable and poignant epitaph for himself in New Principles, in his sensitive appreciation of the lone role of the inventor or innovator in society. Pursuing objects not to be perceived by others, or, if perceived, whose importance is beyond the reach of their conceptions, the motives of their conduct are necessarily misapprehended. They are esteemed either idlers, culpably negligent in turning account the talents they have got, dullards deficient in the common parts necessary to discharge the common offices of life, or madmen, unfit to be trusted with their performance, shut out from the esteem or fellowship of those whose regard they might prize. They are brought into contact with those with whom they can have nothing in common, knaves who laugh at them as their prey, fools who pity them as their fellows. Their characters misunderstood, debarred from all sympathy, uncheered by any approbations. The eternal war they have to wage with fortune is doubly trying, because they are aware that if they succumb they will be borne off the field not only unknown but misconceived. 12. Nassau Sr., Praxeology, and John Stuart Mill There are few economists in any age who are self-conscious about the methodology of their craft. Even more was this true during the alleged heyday of the British classical school, which, as we have seen, was an era of disintegration rather than triumph of the Ricardian paradigm. But an excellent methodologist was one of the finest economists of that epoch, Nassau W. Sr. Sr. indeed took up the torch of the praxeological method that had been expounded and used by the great French economist of the early 19th century, Jean-Baptiste Say. Sr. began to spell out his views on methodology in his very first introductory lecture at Oxford in 1826. 
With exceptional clarity, he began by stating that economic theory rests on the broadest general insights about human nature, insights that are self-evident in the sense that once stated they command universal assent. Economic theory, says Senior, will be found to rest on a very few general propositions which are the result of observation, or consciousness, and which almost every man, as soon as he hears them, admits as familiar to his thoughts, or at least as included in his previous knowledge. But if these premises, or axioms, rest on general knowledge of man and the world, then conclusions deduced from them must possess equal generality. Its conclusions are also nearly as general as its premises. Those which relate to the nature and production of wealth are universally true. It is, then, the task of the economist to narrow down the conclusions to those areas which are directly relevant to the problem at hand. Thus, those conclusions which relate to the distribution of wealth are liable to be affected by peculiar institutions of particular countries, in the cases, for instance, of slavery, corn laws, or poor laws. The natural state of things can be laid down as a general rule, and the anomalies produced by particular disturbing causes can be afterwards accounted for. As specifically part of his apodictic conclusions, Nassau Sr. generalized laws that other economists had been approaching or groping for. For example, Senior defined wealth as all goods and services that possess utility, and which therefore will be purchased in exchange. He then stated in his first fundamental proposition that every person is desirous to obtain, with as little sacrifice as possible, as much as possible of the articles of wealth. Not only did Senior thus ably generalize some important insights of universal human action, he also in that way dismissed Adam Smith's unfortunate distinction between productive, material, and unproductive, immaterial, labor. Everything which people desired and were willing to buy was productive, it is because Ricardo at least implicitly adopted this distinction that he was able to dismiss cavalierly any explanation of the pricing of immaterial services, and hence to move toward a cost theory of value. In elaborating on this first fundamental proposition, Senior moved on to an eloquent summation of the relationship between desire, individual diversity, choice, and human effort. In stating that every man desires to obtain additional wealth with as little sacrifice as possible, we must not be supposed to mean that everybody, or indeed anybody, wishes for an indefinite quantity of everything. What we mean to state is that no person feels his whole wants to be adequately supplied, that every person has some unsatisfied desires which he believes that additional wealth would gratify. The nature and urgency of each individual's wants are as various as the differences in individual character. Some may wish for power, others for distinction, others for leisure. 
Money seems to be the only object for which the desire is universal, and it is so because money is abstract wealth. An equal diversity exists in the amount and the kind of the sacrifice which different individuals or even the same individual will encounter in the pursuit of wealth. Two decades later, on returning to the Drummond Chair at Oxford, Nassau Sr., in his introductory lectures in 1847, returned to the problem of the methodology of economics. Published in 1852 in his Four Introductory Lectures on Political Economy, he now defined economic science as expounding the laws regulating the production and distribution of wealth, so far as they depend on the action of the human mind, the latter clause emphasizing that economics was a mental rather than physical science. Indeed, Senior saw clearly that the proper scientific method was dualistic, the physical sciences treating the properties of matter, while the metal ones study the sensations, faculties, and habits of the human mind, and regard in matter only the qualities which produce them. The methods of the two sciences must necessarily differ, for the physical sciences, being only secondarily conversant with mind, draw their premises almost exclusively from observation or hypothesis. Observation may guide such strictly empirical sciences as technology, but such sciences as physics, those which treat only of magnitude and number, draw them altogether from hypothesis. The physical sciences must rest on tentative hypotheses, precisely because they are only secondarily conversant with mind. On the other hand, the mental sciences and the mental arts draw their premises principally from consciousness. The subjects with which they are chiefly conversant are the working of the human mind, and the only mind whose workings a man really knows is his own. And, of course, economics was one of the mental sciences. In this way, Nassau Sr., with brilliant clarity, developed the essentials of what Ludwig von Mises, a century later, would call praxeology. As in the case of other mental sciences, economics cannot, like the physical sciences, conduct experiments. It is true, Sr. noted, that economics deals with such material matters as production, productivity, and diminishing returns, but the political economist dwells on them only with reference to the mental phenomena which they serve to explain, as among the motives or sources of capital, rent, profit, etc. In short, wrote Senior, all the technical terms, therefore, of political economy represent either purely mental ideas, such as demand, utility, value, and abstinence, or objects which, though some of them may be material, are considered by the political economist so far only as they are the causes of certain affectations of the human mind, such as wealth, capital, rent, wages, and profits. It is important to consider the once famous battle between Nassau Sr. and John Stuart Mill on economic method, 
for Mill was soon to become the undeservedly towering economist for the next half-century. Mill agreed that economics as a mental science cannot conduct experiments, but he did not conclude with Senior that its premises or axioms should be complete, general, and apodictic. Instead, he asserted that the foundations and premises of economics can only be hypothetical, that is, they must make assumptions that abstract from and hence distort reality. The axioms of economics are only partially or hypothetically true. In short, for Mill, since economics focuses on man's desire for wealth, it must assume, even though admittedly falsely, that man's only desire is for wealth. Thus, as Mill stated in his Essays on Some Unsettled Questions in Political Economy in 1844, Political economy does not treat of the whole of man's nature as modified by the social state, nor of the whole conduct of man in society. It is concerned with him solely as a being who desires to possess wealth, and who is capable of judging the comparative efficacy of means for obtaining that end. It predicts only such of the phenomena of the social state as take place in consequence of the pursuit of wealth. It makes entire abstraction of every other human passion or motive. Political economy considers mankind as occupied solely in acquiring and consuming wealth, and aims at showing what is the course of action into which mankind living in a state of society would be impelled if that motive were absolute ruler of all their actions. Not that any political economist was ever so absurd as to suppose that mankind are really thus constituted, but because this is the mode in which science must necessarily proceed. Mill conceded that the founding assumption of his economics was an arbitrary definition of man, for it reasoned from assumed premises, from premises which might be totally without foundation in fact, and which are not pretended to be universally in accordance with it. And thus, John Stuart Mill, in this adumbration of the methodology of the deliberate creation of the fallacious economic man, the man who is only interested in pursuing wealth, elaborated what might be called the orthodox or dominant positivist methodology in economics. The positivist method, set down with such fallacious and fateful clarity by Mill, after a struggle with alternative praxeological as well as other methods, finally triumphed in the mid-twentieth century with the unfortunate rise to dominance of the positivism of Vilfredo Pareto and Milton Friedman. Part of the motivation of Senior's thoughtful lectures on method in 1847 was precisely to engage in a critique and demolition of million positivism. Since Mill, like Smith and Ricardo before him, returned to their fallacious limitation of wealth to material goods, the resulting distortion of value and production theory made Senior's task all the more important. 
Senior's assault on Mill as well as on Ricardo was formidable and devastating. He made their essential differences clear. Neither the reasoning of Mr. Mill nor the example of Mr. Ricardo induce me to treat political economy as a hypothetical science. I do not think it necessary, and, if unnecessary, I do not think it desirable. It appears to me that if we substitute for Mr. Mill's hypothesis that wealth and costly enjoyment are the only object of human desire, the statement that they are universal and constant objects of desire, that they are desired by all men and at all times, we shall have laid an equally firm foundation for our subsequent reasoning, and have put a truth in the place of an arbitrary assumption. Senior goes on to concede that indeed we shall not now be able to infer from the fact that a laborer may so act as to obtain higher wages, or a capitalist higher profits, that they will certainly act in that manner. But at least we shall be able to infer that they will do so in the absence of disturbing causes, and if we are able, as will frequently be the case, to state the cases in which these causes may be expected to exist, and the force with which they are likely to operate, we shall have removed all objection to the positive as opposed to the hypothetical treatment of the science. One danger of the hypothetical method, Senior wisely and prophetically points out, is the perpetual danger of forgetting that the premises are not complete, and are only partial and even false assumptions. Another, and even deeper, flaw is that, since the assumptions are false from the very beginning, there is no way to bring in experience or observation to correct or even check on the conclusions of the abstract analysis. In this way, positivists, who always trumpet their method as being the only truly scientific and empirical one, turn out to be resting on runaway and uncorrectable false premises. On the other hand, and ironically, the praxeological method, which has long been accused of a priori mysticism, is the only one that bases theory on broadly known and deeply empirical, indeed, universally true, premises. Being universally true, the praxeological method provides complete and general laws, rather than partial and hence generally false ones. As Marion Bowley astutely sees the difference, thus in the question of the definition of the desire for wealth, if it is stated in Mill's form that everyone always prefers wealth to anything else, the economic man, with the added warning that it is only a hypothesis, the constant relation between the desire for wealth and all other conflicting motives is not defined completely by the general law. It remains necessary to introduce a further premise in each individual stating the general relation of other motives to that of the desire for wealth, as well as evaluating the actual variables. Now Senior's explanation of the desire for wealth includes information as to the interconnections between the variables. Or, as Miss Bowley explains further, 
Seniors' substitution of net advantages for earnings is equivalent to defining in general terms the relation between all the variables which influence the distribution of resources between occupations, instead of leaving that relation to be considered afresh in each use. Thus, a positivist, assuming that businessmen are always and only interested in maximizing money profits, might well overlook and ignore instances of businessmen placing other motives, such as giving an executive post to one's relative, higher than profits. Or, worse still, if acknowledging such instances, he would be tempted to dismiss these cases contemptuously as irrational behavior. Similarly, Charles Dickens, who repeatedly spoofed and attacked classical economics in his novels, had a utilitarian son refuse to help his impoverished mother on the ground that the science of political economy told him that to be rational, a man must always buy in the cheapest market and sell in the dearest. And since Smith, Ricardo, Mill, classical economics solely emphasized cost of production and therefore was totally blocked from even talking about the consumer, it was especially open to this Dickensian misconception. <laughs>